John 2, 13-22, the title of my sermon, Jesus the Temple. Here's the big idea. True worship is found in Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. All right, listen. Don't you talk about my mama. I'm serious. Don't you talk about my mama. And maybe the last time you heard that phrase was on a playground in elementary school. And maybe you're the one saying it. Maybe, maybe someone made a fat joke about your mom. That happened when you're young. And kids are mean, right? But there's a line you don't cross, especially with young boys. Because you, you have to understand, if you're a young boy, there's no one in your life like your mama, right? I mean, mama's everything. Mama's your world. You haven't gotten married yet. There's been no leaving and cleaving. And so right now, that is the most important relationship for a young boy, mama. And if someone crosses that line and speaks ill of mama, it's on. Don't you talk about my mama. Listen, here's the point. When someone dishonors a loved one, someone that you care about, you take it personally, don't you? I, I do. It gets you fired up. Just like when you were a young boy on the playground and someone made a cut at your mama. Don't do that. You are, we are committed to the honor of those that we love. In our passage, you know, we may be surprised if you were listening, and we'll, we'll go back a few more times and, and look at it more carefully and more closely, but you may be surprised to see Jesus acting with such great passion due to the fact that the temple is being abused and misused. His father's house is being dishonored. Instead of worship and mission, Jesus finds business taking place. This was not simply inappropriate, but sinful and wrong, and Jesus responds. And he responds in a powerful way, which we're going to look at. What time was it? Well, it was the time of the Passover. So this was, Passover was the most important Jewish feast and celebration. It was an annual feast. It was an annual celebration. And it looked back. Everybody say it looked back. We got to get that. It looked back to the Lord's mighty and merciful deliverance of the Jewish people from Egypt on the night of the Exodus. It was a, a commemoration. It was a time of remembering God's provision of a sacrifice, a substitute. You see, God if you're familiar with the story in Exodus, God had sent a series of plagues against the Egyptian people to showcase his power and his glory and to judge the wicked Egyptians and their false gods. But the tenth and the final plague, this is the climax or the crescendo of the story, was the death of the firstborn. Okay, that was the final plague. And Israel was not exempt. Why, why were they not exempt from this plague? Because they too were what? They too were sinners. And if you remember the story, the Lord commands his people to sacrifice a lamb without blemish and then take some of the blood and put it over the what? Over the doorpost. And what does God promise? If you do that, when the blood is seen, God's wrath will literally pass over that home and the firstborn will be spared. So again, Passover looked back, but it also looked ahead to God's future rescue of his people. 
During Passover, especially during the time of Jesus, expectations were high in Jerusalem. It was a politically charged time, a time of remembrance, obviously looking back, but it was also a time of longing for God to once again intervene and save his people. Recall John the Baptist's words in John 1, 29, Behold the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was and is to be seen as the greater Passover lamb come to bring about the new exodus. All right, so what do we learn in our passage? What do we see? We see three things from our text. Number one, the king's pronouncement. The king's pronouncement. Verses 13 to 16. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there, (laughs) and this is where it turns, and making a whip of cords. Can you imagine this scene? This really happened, by the way. In making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He's flipping tables. And then he speaks. He acts, and then he speaks. And we'll come back to that. That's very prophetic, by the way. He acts, and then he speaks. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Now, maybe you're not familiar with this text. You're like, wait a minute. I don't remember reading this in the Gospels. I remember, you know, meek and mild Jesus Spending time with the weak, spending time with the suffering, open blind eyes, healing the sick. But this, oh yeah, it's there. It's there. So this scene may appear shocking to many. Meek and mild Jesus. Well, this is Jesus the judge enacting God's judgment against the temple. You mad, bro? Do y'all remember that game? You mad, bro? Nobody? So this was back, I think, in 2012. This was uh, New England Patriots and the Seattle Seahawks. And I was living in Seattle at the time, so that's why I'm familiar. So the Patriots, you know, led by Tom Brady, they were ahead. They were winning this game. And Tom Brady was known for talking trash. And he told Richard Sherman, guys, look at the score. This game's over. It's over, right? Well, what happened? The Seahawks came back and won. And there was this scene, and this is famous, I mean, you can look this up today if you want to, where Tom Brady's just distraught. It's like he lost his puppy. You know, he is just a mess after the game, head down, despondent. And Richard Sherman walks up and says, you mad, bro? (laughs) And it took off. I mean, people made t-shirts and there were memes. You don't remember that? It's hilarious. Why is Jesus so upset here? What's going on? What's the reason for his passionate response? Let me tell you. You know, the acts of selling animals and exchanging money, that was not inherently wrong. There was nothing wrong with that. These acts were appropriate given the time. Let me give you some background here. During the time of Jesus, every male adult living within 15 miles of Jerusalem was required to come and celebrate the Passover. And in fact, many 
beyond this distance came out of a sense of strong religious duty. And not only that, but those who attended Passover were required to do two things. How many things? Two. Okay, here they are. One, they were to pay the temple tax. That was required. Two, they were to offer a sacrifice in worship to the Lord. Therefore, okay, to to sacrifice animals, what do you need? You need animals. So therefore, animals needed to be purchased and money exchanged so that those who came used the local currency in paying the temple tax. So again, this is not wrong what's happening. What's wrong? It wasn't the acts themselves, but the location of the acts themselves. Again, the, the buying and selling of animals, exchanging currency, it should have happened near the temple, but not within its walls. That's what's wrong. But the location of the business was more troubling than one might initially realize. The Jews had set up shop in the outer court of the temple, which was known as the court of the, anybody? Court of the Gentiles. This was the one place, there was one place where non-Jews, Gentiles could come to worship the Lord, but they can't. Why? Because there's buying In selling, there's exchanging currency. Shop has been set up in this one location where non-Jews could come to worship the Lord. The fact that the Jews were buying and selling in the temple in this specific area really proclaimed two sad truths. Here they are. Number one, they weren't concerned with the worship of God. They were concerned with the cares of the world and greatly accumulating wealth, which was greedy. They weren't concerned with the things of God. And second, more specifically, they weren't concerned with the mission of God, God's heart for the nations. God's heart has always been for the nations. Well, the place where the nations could come and worship God was what? It was full. Sorry, hey, we're buying and selling here. There's no room for you. So what does Jesus do? How does he respond? He acts and he speaks. What does he do? He acts and he speaks. He drives out those selling animals. He overturns the tables of the money changers. I love this scene. How hardcore is that? Wow. Jesus is passionate about the things of God. And then he speaks, okay? And and what does he say? He doesn't just act. He speaks, and that's very prophetic. Verse 16, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. There's so much there, friends. Take these things away. Get them out of here. Stop what you're doing. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. The temple, who was here during Exodus? When we studied the book of Exodus. Not, yeah, I'm sorry. (laughs) Hopefully nobody. That'd be incredible. Methuselah, are you out here? The temple, we learned, was to be holy, meaning it was to be set apart for the purpose of God. It had become common, right? It had become common. It was being used for business rather than worship. So Jesus works to cleanse it. He removes the things that have made God's house unclean. He removes those things that have prevented true worship and mission from taking place. Furthermore, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, 
Jesus' temple actions recall several important Old Testament passages. We're actually seeing fulfillment here. This is really cool. Are you ready? Okay, two of you. Walt, I heard you. Thank you, brother. Zechariah 14.21. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. Now listen. And there shall no longer be a traitor, one who trades. Not like a traitor, like you traitor with a T-O-R, but a T-R-A-D-E-R, someone who trades, exchanges things, business. No longer shall business be done in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So what's promised here in Zechariah is the purification of God's temple. No longer would it be a place of business and trade, but a holy place set apart for the worship of the Lord. Well, cool. Who's going to do that? Not yet. Recall Malachi. I love Malachi. Malachi 3, verses 1 and 3. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, whom you seek, will suddenly come to his temple. Ooh. Verse 3. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Okay, so according to Malachi 3, the Lord will come to his temple in judgment to purify it and restore the worship of his people. And what we're seeing in our passage in John 2 is the fulfillment of such things. God is faithful. Amen? Jesus' actions pronounced judgment upon Israel and its temple. Jesus' actions fall in line with prophetic tradition. You know, I love the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of similar examples where God proclaimed judgment. God proclaims judgment against his people through the symbolic actions of his prophets. Let me give you three examples. One thinks of the ruined loincloth in Jeremiah 13, or Isaiah walking barefoot and naked for three years in Isaiah 20, or my favorite, Ezekiel baking bread over human excrement in Ezekiel 4. Yes, that is in the Bible. What do these things convey? What do they symbolize? All of these symbolic actions were used to convey God's judgment. In the same way, Jesus, his actions in the temple speak to God's judgment against his unprepared people. Why does Jesus take what he finds in the temple so seriously? Yeah, maybe you're thinking, like Richard Sherman, you mad, bro? Like, what, what, what is going on here? Does this seem extreme to you? Flipping tables, driving people out, making a whip, speaking prophetically? What's going on? Well, listen to verse 16 one more time. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. It's very personal. Don't make this house or this house of worship, but Jesus says, do not make my father's house a house of trade. You notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say our house. 
He says, my house, my father's house. So let me, let me just unpack this for us. Jesus' words are weighty. Again, he doesn't say our father's house, but my father's house. Jesus' choice of words convey two things. How many things? Two things. First, they serve as an indictment. This you are guilty statement. They serve as an indictment against those buying and selling and exchanging money in the temple. These are not God's people. Because what does he not say? He doesn't say, do not make our father's house, don't make my father's house. He's separating himself from those who are buying and selling and exchanging. These are not God's people. These are not his children. Second, it speaks to the unique relationship with the Father and Jesus' identity. I mean, what kind of relationship does Jesus have with the Father? How long has he known the Father? Forever, right? He is the Son of God. He can call God my Father. If you go back to Psalm 2, this was a title for the Messiah. Jesus is the promised king to rescue and rule over God's people. And more than that, it speaks to his divine identity. Jesus is the eternal son of God. You know, in, in John 5, Jesus gets himself in trouble with the religious leaders. He calls God his father, and the Jews seek to kill him because they saw that title as akin to Jesus making himself God. How dare you say that? You're making yourself God. Well, if the shoe fits, he is God. And that's already been made clear in John's gospel. Jesus is God. Jesus. Now, here's the irony, the sad irony of our passage. This will help you understand why Jesus is so upset and rightfully so. It's righteous anger. It's indignation. Listen to this. Jesus comes to the place that had been designed for the worship of him. And what does he find? It's not being used for that purpose at all. So why is Jesus indignant? Because an offense against the Father is an offense against him. The Father and the Son are one. Jesus feels indignation because the corruption of the temple and the refusal to worship rightly is directly related to Jesus, the one who deserves all praise. Let me give you some application questions here. I want us to think about these this morning. Number one, are you doing anything right now, church? Are you personally doing anything right now that might prevent others from coming to Jesus? What were their actions doing? By holding business in the court of the Gentiles, they were preventing non-Jews from coming to worship the Lord. And Jesus is angry about that. That was to wake you up if you weren't listening. This is a passionate story. It's God's word, so listen. Are you doing anything right now that might prevent others from coming to Jesus? Examples of this? What might this look like today? Grumbling and complaining about your church and living a lifestyle that is contrary to the Christian gospel. Don't do that. Instead, here's the second question. This is where we should all lean. Or, like Jesus, are you removing any and all barriers to people coming to Christ? That should be our MO. Removing barriers. 
that would prevent people from coming to Christ. Amen? Not putting barriers in front of people. Don't do that. But rather, be committed to removing any and all barriers that might prevent people from coming to Christ. Well, let's further unpack the reason for Jesus' actions in the temple. Number two, we have the king's passion. So we have the king's pronouncement, his pronouncement of judgment, but we also have the king's passion. Verse 17, his disciples, this is so good, they remembered. They knew the scriptures, right? They remembered that it was written, zeal. What does that word mean? Passion, zeal. Zeal for your house will consume me. Here we have the explanation. Are you ready for this? Here we have the explanation for Jesus' response in the temple. Jesus is passionate for the things of God and for the worship of God. And all God's people said, okay, so if Jesus is passionate for the things of God and the worship of God, so too should his body be. It's true? This was God's calling for his people, the Jewish people, namely a zeal and passion for the things of God and especially for the worship of God. Now, the background to verse 17 is Psalm 69. What is the connection, I wonder, between Psalm 69 and the actions of Jesus? Jesus is likened, compared to the righteous sufferer in Psalm 69, who is passionate for the things of God and specifically the worship of God. Now, Psalm 69 is attributed to King David. And if you know about Israel's king, the king was called to represent the people and lead them by example in the way of the Lord. That was the king's job, okay? The king's job was to represent the people and to lead them by example to the Lord. Jesus' passion for the pure, unadulterated worship of God is not shared by the people, right? What does Jesus find? Not worship, not mission, but business taking place in the temple. What we're going to see is this conflict will eventually lead to Jesus' death, and yet Jesus never wavers, does he? He never wavers. His commitment to the will of the Father and to restoring true worship places him on a collision course with the cross. You know, commitment to the word of God will place us in harm's way. Do you realize that? If you commit to God's word, I promise you, you will find yourself in harm's way. You'll be placed at odds with the world and with Satan. Listen, the, the Christian life, my friends, is, is dangerous, isn't it? It's dangerous, but it's worth it because he is, he's what? He's worthy. Amen. He's worthy. That's why Jesus in Mark 8, 34 says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. If you're going to follow me, you've got to commit to me. I've got to be at the center, and it could cost you your, your very life. He wasn't just, you know, being allegorical there. He was being literal. You follow Jesus, it could cost you your life. Is it worth it? Yes, because he's, he's worthy. So not only, this is helpful, not only is Jesus portrayed as the greater King David, the greater king in our passage, but Jesus is portrayed as the true Israelite as well. Let me unpack this. 
Jesus shows us what it means to be the people of God. In fact, it's through Jesus that we sinners are brought into God's people, whether Jew or Gentile. Jesus is the true Israelite, meaning that he shows us what it looks like to be the people of God. Where do we look to see what it looks like to be the people of God? Who shows us that perfectly? Tell me. Christ. If you know your Old Testament, if you know Isaiah 40 to 55, it says there's going to come one, the servant of the Lord, and he is going to do, and he is going to be all that my people Israel should do and be and yet fail to do and be. Who is that servant of the Lord? Who came? Christ. Christ. You see, God's people were called to be zealous for the worship of God. Here in John 2, they failed, but here Jesus would succeed. Let me give you some more application questions for point number two. Again, we had the king's pronouncement. Number two, the king's passion. Are we, like Jesus, passionate about the worship of God? Are we? Are you? Are you passionate about the worship of God? Are we committed to the will of God and the things of God no matter what it costs? Kent Hughes writes, the way we worship reveals what we think about God. Isn't that true? The way we worship reveals what we think about God. So the second question here is, what does our worship reveal about our beliefs in God? If someone came in here, would they say, wow, you guys worship a big God. You really fear the God that you worship. You love him. There's a reverence and an awe. Or would someone come in and say, man, this is common. This is irreverent. This doesn't seem very purposeful or intentional. And that brings me to the third question. Has your worship become common? Has it become common? Are you just going through the motions? Are you upset if our gathering exceeds one hour? Let me ask this question. Are you ill-prepared for Sunday mornings? Do you come in late? Do you come in dragging? Or are you thinking Saturday, you know what? I'm going to make sure that I get a good night's sleep so that I can be fully engaged, so that I can sing to my Lord who is worthy and hear from his word. Listen, I see everything that happens in here on Sundays. Everything. I'm watching you guys. I'm praying for you, but I'm watching you. I can tell when you're not prepared. I can tell when you're just kind of here. I know. But who knows exhaustively and infinitely? The Lord knows. You can fool me, but you can't fool the Lord. You know, there's this great illustration I heard years ago from a pastor friend of mine. I think it'll be helpful today. Imagine a king. A great king, a benevolent king, a just king, a righteous king, a faithful king, a loving king is coming to town. He's coming to your city. This king is all-powerful. This king's good. And the city that he's coming to, they rent out the largest venue. We'll say it's maybe a basketball arena, okay? And preparations are made. Invitations go out, phone calls, personal letters, There's signs, the word has gotten out, and the day finally arrives, and in walk four or five people, an arena that holds maybe 10,000. Would the king be honored by that? What do you think? 
course not. It matters that we gather. Why do we gather on Sundays, the Lord's Day? We gather for the honor of the King. Amen? And when we don't gather, or if we gather unprepared, if we come in late, I'm not, I'm not trying to be a jerk here, or, or if we come in just kind of, oh, another Sunday, is the Lord honored by that? What does the Lord deserve? What is He worthy of? Our lives and our best. Amen? All right, let me finish up with this. What else do we see in our passage? We've looked at the king's pronouncement. We've looked at the king's passion. Number three, we have the king's provision. Oh, and what has the king provided for sinners like us? That's verses 18 and 22. It's the last part of our passage. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Prove yourself, Jesus. You come in here acting all prophetic, acting, speaking like a prophet, prove that you have the authority to do these things. Whoa. Oh, man. If they only knew, right? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? We get the clarification in verse 21. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. You know, the temple was corrupt. It was. The Jews' worship, or lack thereof, revealed a tragic irreverence to the Lord. You know, there's a story in Mark's gospel where Jesus, this is like the climax of Mark. He's coming to the temple. On the way, he sees a fig tree in bloom, but there's no figs on it, so he curses the tree. He goes into the temple. Again, he sees corruption. He addresses it prophetically. They leave the temple, and his disciples say, hey, isn't that the fig tree that you cursed? It's withered. It's dead. We're meant to make a comparison between the temple and the fig tree. There was no fruit. What's coming? Judgment. 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 Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Again, the temple was corrupt. The Jews' worship or lack thereof, as I said, revealed a tragic irreverence to the Lord. They had rejected their mission, their very vocation to be a light to the nations. They were not concerned with the nations. How do we know that? Because the court of the Gentiles is full of business. All their buying and selling, their busyness, couldn't camouflage their hearts. Their religiosity was a foul stench to the Lord. They needed a divine solution. They needed a Savior. Amen? They needed the death and resurrection of Jesus. Again, our passage takes a dramatic turn when the Jews ask for a sign from Jesus. Why do they do this? They were demanding that Jesus prove to them that he had the authority to cleanse the temple and speak prophetically against them. What gives you the right to do and say these things? And what does Jesus say? Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. The Jews respond with confusion in verse 20. Man, it's 
taken 46 years to build this. You're going you're gonna to destroy it, and then in three days it's going to be rebuilt. Are you kidding me? But we, everybody say we, just so I know you're with me, we're given clarity in verse 21. But he was speaking about what? Not the physical temple, but the temple of his, of his body. So what is the ultimate sign of Jesus' authority? What is it? What event vindicates Jesus? The resurrection. Oh, I could speak on the resurrection all day. In fact, I plan to today, so buckle up. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Romans 1, 3 and 4, Paul writes, Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. He was declared to be the Son of God in power by his what? His resurrection. The resurrection is everything, right? It is the ultimate vindication of Jesus. It is the event that declares he has all authority. Acts 2.36, Peter says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. What was Peter just talking about before this section? The, the resurrection. And by his resurrection, the Father has made him Lord in Christ. Here's what the resurrection means. The resurrection means, well, one, that the tomb is empty. Amen? <laughs> but the resurrection means, and by resurrection I'm saying Jesus died, and on the third day he was raised. He came back to life. He's alive. He really died, and he's really alive. He overcame death. He promised he would. Between Mark 8 and Mark 10, three times. He prophetically states, I'm going to die. He gives more detail each time. But every time, after he talks about his death, he says, but on the third day, I will be raised. The resurrection, here's what it means. It means that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that what he did worked. The resurrection means that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that what he did worked. You know, Matthew 28, 18 Jesus said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus says this after what? After he'd been raised. Why can we trust in the gospel, friends? Because Jesus is alive. Why can we have assurance of our salvation? Because Jesus is alive. What else is Jesus saying here? Destroy this temple and I'll raise it in three days. Jesus is the temple. What does this mean? That's strange. What do you mean by that, Chris? He's the temple. What was the temple? Get this. What was the temple? What was the temple's function? It was the place where man met with God. It was the place where God's glory was revealed. It was the place of sacrifice where sin was atoned for or dealt with. It was the place where heaven and earth met. Now, this has already been hinted at in John's gospel. Remember John 1.14? The word became flesh and tabernacled among us. Who is the greater tabernacle? Jesus. Remember John 1.29? The next day, he saw John the Baptist, J.B., saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is the greater Lamb of sacrifice and the place of atonement. John 1.51. Remember this? 
You better, I mean, I've mentioned like three or four times now, so you better remember John 151. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So back in Genesis 28, right, Jacob has this vision. He sees a ladder, angels ascending and descending. The Lord at the top of the ladder speaking. What does he call that place? Beth Ul, or Baeth El, house of God. Who is the greater house of God? Say it with me. Jesus. No longer, this is what Jesus is saying, this is revolutionary. No longer would the temple be at the center of the life and the worship of God's people, but who? Jesus. Jesus replaces the temple. Do you wish to know God? Come to Jesus. Do you wish to have your sins forgiven? Come to Jesus. Do you wish to worship the one true God? What's he going to say? Come to Jesus. Jesus, this is so good, proclaims his death and resurrection at the very beginning of John's gospel. John wants us to see that this is where our story is headed. The only solution for the sinful corruption of humanity, the only way for the worship of God to be restored is through the death and resurrection of Jesus. Recall Jesus' words in John 4, verse 23. Jesus says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Listen, friends, our hope is not in a building. Our hope is not in a place. Our hope is in a person. And who's that person? Jesus Christ. As the great hymn reminds us, our hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. And not only is Jesus the temple, but so are we by virtue of our union with Christ. We too are to be a holy and set apart people for the purpose of God. We are to be a place, more than that, a people committed to the worship of God. And that's why we gather. How does our passage end? Let's bring it to a close. How does our passage end? Again, we have emphasized the right or appropriate response to Jesus. Verse 22, our last verse. When therefore he was raised from the dead, this is called a prolepsis, right? John is pointing us to the end of the story at the very beginning. This is where the story is headed. What does John end with? An empty tomb, amen? When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Again, as far as application, behold Jesus Believe in Jesus and follow Jesus. Behold Jesus, believe in Jesus, and follow Jesus. And here's here's the kicker. Here's where I want us to really stand. Remember the resurrection. Jesus' action in the temple do a few things that we must grasp. They declare God's judgment, and they look ahead to God's solution, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Ironically, Jesus at the beginning of John's gospel, points ahead to the greatest sign of his ministry, which is what? What is the greatest sign of his ministry? It's the resurrection. Because the resurrection of Jesus is everything. It means that the cross worked. Hey, let me ask you some questions, church. When you're afraid, who's ever been afraid? When you're afraid, remember the resurrection. When you doubt your right standing with God. Anybody done that before? You doubt your right standing with God? Hey, remember the resurrection. 
When you're discouraged, church, remember the resurrection. When you're restless, remember the resurrection. When your body is failing, remember the resurrection. When you doubt God's love, remember the resurrection. Every day, remember the resurrection. Let me end with these three application questions and then we'll pray. Have you come to Jesus for a relationship with God? Have you trusted in God's solution for salvation from sin and hell? Who is God's solution for salvation from sin and hell? Who alone can save us from the eternal wrath of God that we all deserve? Jesus, who lived and died and rose again for sinners. Number two, are you proclaiming the king's provision to others? Are you proclaiming the king's provision to others? One for P, guys. Find one person in your relational world that doesn't know Jesus, a lost person. Commit to praying for them. Plan how you're going to engage them. Practice or live out the gospel before them. And number four, you've got to proclaim to them the good news. And number three, and then we'll pray. Are you living life out of the knowledge that the tomb is empty? The fact that the tomb is empty changes everything. Amen? Are you living life out of the knowledge that the tomb is empty? Are you remembering the resurrection of Jesus? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son, your perfect provision, the greater sacrifice, the greater Passover lamb that lived and died and rose again to save us. Father, I pray that we would hear the warning in this passage that we are corrupt, that we are sinful, that we reject the things that you have shown us in your word for our own things, our own plans, our own desires. We need a solution. We need the death and resurrection of Jesus. And I pray if there's anyone here that has not beheld Christ in the word and believed in Christ revealed in the word, and followed Christ, that they would do that today by your grace and for your glory. Father, I pray for those of us who know the solution, who have trusted in Jesus and are following him as king, that we would share this solution with the world, that we'd be burdened for the loss, that we would not put anything, any hindrance, any impediment in the way of unbelievers, but that we would represent you before the world, that we would go to the world armed with the good news of Jesus, declaring that a sacrifice has been made, a perfect life lived in a tomb made empty, all for sinners, that we would call the lost to turn from their sin and trust in Jesus. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for your mission. We thank you for your saving work. We thank you for your obedience to the Father. We thank you that the tomb is empty, and I pray that we would live out of that knowledge. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.